0: This morning we are going to be continuing in a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the last few months in the book of Exodus, uh, and we'll be in Exodus 33 today, reading from uh, verse seven through 23. And this is uh, this is really the center. So Israel is uh, we're at the end of their time at Mount Sinai. Remember they've uh, left Egypt, they've journeyed through the wilderness, they've arrived at Sinai. Moses received the law. And now God is in the midst of moving them on from there, but uh, not before there's a little bit of tragedy and drama in the midst of it. We've seen uh, last week that before Moses even gets down uh, from the mountain, the people have started worshiping an idol. Uh, God brought judgment uh, on the people in that. And now we're kind of in the middle of this story that's basically asking, how is God going to be able to dwell with this people? Uh, that he has described over and over, it seems to be the favorite way of describing Israel at this point of the story, that they are a stiff-necked people. Uh, They're a stubborn people, a people who are not easily led where the Lord wants them to go. And so uh, in the wake of that, uh, God says, you know what, you all go on. You all go to the promised land, but I can't go with you. I can't uh, continue on with this stiff-necked people. And so we'll pick up the story at verse 7. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, "'See, you say to me, bring up up this people, but you have not yet let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways.' that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, over the course of our time this morning, we're going to look at most of this chapter. Uh, But what I want us to focus in and what the sermon is really going to focus in on is just a few words. Uh, Moses' five-word prayer in verse 18. When Moses prays, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. You know, the scriptures are full of wonderful prayers that are given to us to help shape our prayers, right? We we used one of them just just now when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, which was Jesus' answer when his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray like this, right? So the Lord's Prayer is one of those prayers that gives shape and guidance to our prayers, gives us a language to talk back to God. The entire book of Psalms, right, is is a book of prayers, It's a book of prayers meant to shape our prayers and teach us how we're to approach God and pray our entire lives before him. But of all the prayers in the Bible, I think this one, this short prayer, show me your glory, uh, really is the prayer that's at the heart of prayer. It's the prayer that's at the very heart of what it means to seek after God and to, to seek a true, genuine Christian spirituality. It's to pray for an experience, for a vision of who God is, of his glory, of a real picture of God, uh, not as we think him to be, not as our culture says that he is, but a real vision of who God is. You know, if you're here and you have questions about Christianity, if you're here and you're investigating what it means to approach God in the Christian way, show me your glory is really just a, a wonderful first prayer. Uh, It's a wonderful first request to ask of God, God, show me your glory. We have other things that we think we need. Sometimes you might come to God and say, God, answer all my questions, right? If you answer my questions, then I'll be able to to understand you and I'll believe. Maybe we think, God, if you you get me out of this uh, predicament that I'm in, if you uh, solve these problems that I'm facing, then I'll know you're real. Then I'll know that I can trust in you. But really at the heart of seeking after God and getting to know God and learning what he's really like is to simply pray, God, show me yourself. Show me your glory. I'm reminded of uh, some of Jesus' first disciples who come up to him and, and go to his other disciples and say, uh, we want to see Jesus. Right? We, we don't know if we believe in him yet, but we want to see Jesus. We want to come to know who he is and what he reveals to us about God. It's a prayer that God always answers. God may not answer all of our questions. God may not fix all of our problems. But God always has a commitment to revealing his glory, to showing uh, you and I, his image bearers, what he's really like. Augustine, the great uh, third century seeker after God, uh, went on to become St. Augustine. Uh, he made a uh, hundred stopovers on his way from paganism to Christianity. He pursued philosophy. He brought his questions to, to every source uh, that his world had to offer. And then in his confessions, his great uh, autobiographical journal, this is how he describes when he finally meets God himself. He says, late have I loved you, late in my life. Uh, I came to this new faith. Late have I loved you. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You touch me, and I burn for your peace. We said that the prayer, show me your glory, was a great first prayer at the beginning of the Christian life, but it's also the ongoing prayer of life with God. Right, Augustine, what does he say? He says, you fed me, you you, you satisfied my desire, and now I hunger and thirst for more. I met you, and now I pant after more of you. Right, the desire to know God more, to experience more of his glory is one that we can pray from the moment that we set out on this journey to the moment that we say goodbye to this life. There's always more. Remember, Moses prays this prayer, show me your glory, late in his life, probably around between 82 and 85 years old at this point. He's already... Heard God speak to him from a burning bush. Seen God split the waters of the Red Sea. He's seen the fire of God descend on Mount Sinai. And even still, he prays, Lord, show me your glory. That he has this sense that in spite of everything he's experienced of God, there must be more. There must be more to who God is that he can come to know. And that's the beauty of Jesus. It's the beauty of the gospel is that there is always more. Right, as C.S. Lewis put it in the Narnia uh, stories, that we're always, we're not going on from God to something else. There's just always moving further up and further in to discovering more of who God is for us. And so we want to look uh, this morning at how we can see God's glory. The first thing we want to see is that God's glory is seen most clearly in His grace. God's glory is seen most clearly in His grace. Love the way that God describes himself here towards the end of this in verse 19. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Really, the core of this chapter, the core of chapter 33 is this. How can a holy God continue to live with a sinful people? Right? This is, remember, comes in the wake of the unfortunate golden calf incident. Right, It comes in the wake of Israel's, uh, to this point, their greatest tragedy as a people, uh, that despite everything they had seen God do, they wandered from him and made a graven image uh, to hold their worship and their trust. And so in the beginning of chapter 33, God tells them this. He says, look, you all depart, leave Mount Sinai and go on. You go into the promised land. I'm going to be good to my promise. You can still take over the land. I'll still drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, so I'll give you victory in battle. I'll st- it'll still be a land flowing with milk and honey. All of your needs will, will be met. You'll be able to prosper there, but I will not go with you. You can go and you can have everything I promised, but you can't have me. I can't. I can't live with you because of your sin, because you are a stiff-necked people. Now, we should pause here and say and admit honestly that that for many, this sounds actually almost like an ideal religion, an ideal relationship with God. God says, you can have all of my stuff, and you don't have to deal with me. right? You can have wealth and prosperity, you can have victory, you can have fulfillment, but you can't have me. To many of us, this sounds like Okay. Where, where do I sign? I get, I get wealth. I get victory. I get prosperity. I get health. Everything's going well. Right? This is, uh, really at the core of the way that many in our world believe we approach God. That we approach God because of what he can give to us. Right? This is the core of, uh, remember the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. When he says to his father, give me my inheritance now so I can leave you. He wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't want the father. This is at the core of a way that approaches God as a means to an end. It says, God, give me what I want, (laughs) right? I approach God to get what I want out of life, to get the job that I want, the relationship that I want, the prosperity and the health that I want, maybe even the inner peace that I want. And God says, you can have that without me. We have to understand that Christianity, spirituality from the, from the perspective of the Bible, is utterly empty without God at its core. Right? It's not so much the stuff that God gives us that matters. It's God himself, the great gift that God promises us, the greatest gift that Israel hoped in wasn't the land, it wasn't the victory, it wasn't the land flowing with milk and honey. It was that core promise that God said that I will be your God and you will be my people. It's that I'll dwell in the midst of it with you. You can live a life with me at your center. You know, you can have a good life without God. I think we do ourselves and our neighbors a disservice when we tell them, you know what, without God, you're going to be miserable. Without God, you're probably going to be poor. Without God, you're you're going to be miserable and empty and selfish and terrible. Because there's a problem with that is I know a lot of people who don't believe what I believe who seem quite happy. right? I, I know plenty of my neighbors who don't believe what I believe and are, are very generous and kind and loving people. Right? The core of the Christian the Christian offer and the Christian hope isn't that you can't be good without God or that you can't be good without Jesus. It's that you can't have God without Jesus. right? It's not that you can't have a good life and a happy family and get married and, and all those things. Without God, it's without Jesus, it's that without Jesus, you can't have the Father. Without Jesus, whatever goodness this life holds for you, without a way to God the Father, at the center of it, in the end, it'll all come to nothing. In the end, the blessings of this life will be as good as it gets for you without a relationship with the living God. So it's not that you can't have any good things without Jesus, it's that you can't have God without Jesus. You can't have a way to the Father. Well, what does it mean to say that you can't have God without Jesus? It means that the problem of this chapter is a very real one. right? That, that God isn't speaking rhetorically or metaphorically when he says, if I continue going on with you, I might kill you. Right? That's what he says to them in verse 5. If I go with you, you stiff-necked, sinful people, I can't guarantee your safety. I might consume you in my holiness and in my wrath. Right? That is a real problem. That this is an existential threat that the holiness of God poses to unholy and sinful people. It means that God isn't uh, speaking just like a disgruntled parent on a road trip that says, if y'all don't shut up, I'm going to kill somebody. Right? No, he's saying that there is a real problem. That if you continue to live as closely with me as I want to live with you, but continue to sin and rebel and worship other gods, you're not going to make it. This is about the God who dwells in unapproachable holiness, absolute purity, who desires to have a relationship with us, but who, when, our, when we sin, it puts a real barrier between us, a real threat to our ability to live with the God who made us and the God who were made for, the God that we desire above all else. So notice this, Moses' friendship with God isn't broken by the sin of the people. Right, you see that? There's, you know, Moses, in this whole interchange with God, God says, no, Moses, you have found favor in my sight. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to dwell with you. That Moses, remember, he was still up on the mountain dwelling with God when Aaron and the people were making the golden calf. Moses remains God's mediator. He remains God's leader between himself and the people. That God remains in this intimate relationship with Moses. What does it say? That he used to speak with Moses face to face as a man would speak with a friend. And so Moses lives in this intimacy, this this relationship with God. And did you you see what happens when Moses goes to meet with God face to face? All of the other people come out of their tent and they would stand at the gate of their tent and they would look out there while Moses met with God. They would watch while Moses prayed. They will watch while Moses talked with God. But they, because of their sin, were on the outside looking in. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like uh, that there might be real prayer possible, that there might be real intimacy with God that's possible, but that's for good people, right? It, that's for better people than we are. That's for the people who've lived a more upright life. those That's for the people who are more righteous or more wise, more educated, more trained, that we we stand on the outside and look in. Right, Some of you may have, have, depending on what kind of church tradition you grew up in, if you've been around one, have had that enforced, right? That, well, the pastor or the priest, he goes to meet with God. And the ordinary, everyday folks, we just sit back here and hope that he puts in a good word for us. And there's something true about that, right? This idea that in our sin, we stand a step removed from God. That in our sin, we are on the outside looking in. But this is why the scriptures say, the scriptures say that, that Jesus is one like Moses, that there's some ways that Jesus is like Moses, but in so many ways Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a as a, as a truer Moses. Right? Because what? Jesus, we stand and we watch Jesus' intimacy with the Father. It's one of the things that stands out the most to us when we read the Gospels. Right? That Jesus talks to the Father as though he's in this unbroken intimacy. He speaks with the Father as though uh, there's this schedule and he knows exactly where the Father wants to move him and what the Father would have him do. He prays to the Father with this absolute trust in the Father's power. He submits his life to the Father with absolute trust. But Jesus doesn't leave us on the outside of that. He doesn't leave us standing at the entrance of our tent while he goes into the inner tent to meet with the Father. He says he makes a way for us to come into the tent. He makes a way for us to know the Father just as intimately, just as perfectly, just as purely as He does. Right? The Gospel of John tells us that to all who believe, He gives the right to become children of God. Right? That He, the only begotten Son gives the right for you and I to be adopted in, to come into the family, to come into the tent, to know God face to face to no longer be on the outside looking in, aware that our sin keeps us from him. He invites us in, not just through his prayers as Moses does here, but through giving his life, laying down his life, so that we could taste life with the Father. God's glory is seen most beautifully in his grace, that this is where we see who God really is, in his grace, and his laying down his life for us. Secondly, God's glory is seen with his people. God's glory is seen in fellowship with his people. There's this whole exchange between verses 12 and 15 that's a little bit hard to follow. Uh, It's a little bit hard to follow, especially in, in, uh, in English, which is what most of us are reading this in. Um, but what seems to be going on here is that God comes to Moses, or Moses comes to God, and he says, look, you've told me where you're going. You've told me that you'll lead me, but you haven't told me who who's going with me. Right? You haven't told me who's going to accompany me on this journey. And remember, in chapter 32, Moses and the Levites just got done uh, killing 3,000 Israelites in punishment uh, and in judgment over their idolatry. God's just told him, Uh, If I go with you, I might break out in judgment and consume everybody. And so I think what Moses is asking is, okay, you've told me I can go, but who's going to make it? Right? Who's going to go with me or any of your people going to make it with me into this promised land? You haven't told me who's going to go. You've told me that I have found favor in your sight. But consider, too, that this nation is your people. So verse 14, God says, My presence will go with you, singular, and I will give you rest. And then Moses replies, If your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? So what we have here is Moses kind of once again interceding with God for the people, saying, Don't just take me, bring your people. Your promises weren't just made to me. Your promises were made to this entire nation, to the nation of Israel, that you would bring all of us into your inheritance. Don't abandon us along the way. Because this is what makes uh, the people of God distinct. I love this idea. Moses says, look, what makes us distinct, what makes us special, it's not that we're particularly good or righteous or moral. Right it's not that we're an especially faithful people we've already seen that we're not what makes us special what makes us distinct among all the nations of the earth is that you're with us right the promise was that you would be with us dwelling with us as a people together that's what makes us special that's what makes us distinct don't give up on your people You know, in so many ways, this is the scandal of Christianity, right? This is one of the things, probably more than anything else, that makes Christianity so hard to believe in today's world. It's that God dwells with a people who are deeply flawed and broken, right? That God's glory is seen by welcoming people to himself in grace, right? That he does welcome us to himself in spite of our sin, But that God continues to identify himself and to join his name to a people who are by our very nature sinful and broken and at times faithless and wandering. Right? That God says that what makes the church the church, what makes the church distinct is not necessarily that we are any better than anybody else. But it's that he promises his presence will be with us by grace. That he pours out his spirit on ordinary, everyday people who, who, apart from him, are not all that special. But with him becomes something beautiful. Right? It, it, it's amazing that God says that the way the world will see my glory is through the ordinary flesh and blood people of the church. Right? That, that since Jesus' ascension, since the world can no longer see Jesus in physical form, that the way that he'll be seen in the world is through the church. The New Testament uses uh, some amazing metaphors for this, that that Christ is the head and that we are the body, right? That the body is hands and his feet that that give physical expression to his will in the world. That he is the vine and that we're the branches bearing fruit, that as we stay connected with him, we bear real and living fruit in the world. And what makes this so darn hard, and what makes this a scandalous thing for us to claim in our world, is that stories abound in our world over just how broken the church is. Right? I don't know that I've ever uh, angst about the church is as old as the church itself. Right? I mean, the the reason uh, many times that the pagan Romans gave for not believing in Christianity was. The weird beliefs, practices, and behaviors of the church, right? So there's, there's always been angst about the church. There's always been those on the outside saying, well, if the message is true, if God is good and all powerful and amazing and working his kingdom, how do you explain those, how do you explain those people? Right? So there's always been angst about the church. But in my, in my experience, it is at an all time high. Right, that there, if, if you talk with, uh, and, and perhaps this is just part of living uh, in the West, right, living in America, living in a place where, uh, where most people have had some experience of the church, right, you're unlikely to come up to your neighbor and say, hey, I'd like to tell you about Jesus, and them go, oh, who's that? I've never heard of him before, right? Much more likely they're going to say, oh, I know some people that told me about Jesus once. And they were also hypocritical and angry and judgmental. They were prejudiced, they, you know the, the stories abound. They, they covered over abuse in their midst. Right There is a part of being the church that requires us to, to admit the truth about ourselves, right to say that you know what? Uh, very often we are just like the rest of the world. right Very often the sin that's out there also plays itself out in here. And the reason that we're special isn't because we're special. It's not because we're smarter, better, more morally upstanding. It's because God is with us. It's because we've admitted that we're sinners and we've admitted that we need a Savior. It's that God has poured out His Spirit on us. One of the great uh, challenges of faith is to remain committed and identified with God's people. It's to continue to throw our lot in with the people of God and say, yep, no, you know what? Those people are my people, right? I'm not, I can't stand, if I'm a Christian, I can't stand at arm's length from the church. I can't say, well, you know what? That's those kind of Christians. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna disidentify with them. I'm gonna follow Jesus on my own. I'm just gonna have me and God, right? That's gotten especially difficult, right? Over the last year, right, where you can, you know, I'm, I'm, on it. I'm glad anybody's here. I mean, you, you, can, uh, you can watch probably every church service in America live streaming on your internet in your pajamas, right? It takes an act of faith to say, no, no, I don't need uh, just you know, uh, a high-speed Wi-Fi connection to follow Jesus. I don't just need to be able to listen to the best preacher or hear the best music. I need the people of God. I need my brothers and sisters, I need to be living in a real relationship with regular sinners. Sinners who will at times disappoint me and frustrate me and hurt me. But I do not have the option of giving up on the church because God doesn't give up on the church. Jesus doesn't give up on his church. You know what Jesus calls his church? His bride. Right? That that he relates to us as a husband does to a bride. He loves us and he pursues us. And so God's glory is seen in the church. Despite the church's sin, there is real beauty here. There is real acts of tenderness and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and service and love that happens in Christians. And it doesn't, it doesn't make the headlines. right? There's, uh, you know, the newspapers uh, don't run stories about the small acts of ordinary faithfulness uh, that make up the daily life of the church. But it's there, and God's beauty and his glory is seen in it. And then finally, God's glory is seen now, but it's not fully seen yet. God's glory is seen right now, but it's not fully seen yet. Look at these last verses. These are, you know, again, this is kind of hard to to understand exactly what's going on. Moses says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim uh, before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. All right? So this is just, you know, a few verses after God said, or, you know, it's written that God, that God used to relate to Moses face to face as a man does his friend. And now here's God saying, you can't see my face and live. And so clearly, you know, there's some metaphor that's happening here, right? God, uh, we know, is a spirit. God doesn't have a literal, you know, face, hands, feet, right? That God, when the scriptures use this language of face and back and feet and all these things of God, it's speaking, uh, here's a good Scrabble word for you, he's speaking anthropomorphically, right? He's ascribing human characteristics to to something that's beyond a human body. But he's saying, so he's saying God used to speak to him like it was face-to-face, like a friendship. But God's saying, you can't see me face-to-face. You can't look headlong into my glory and live because my glory would overwhelm you. So and we're, we'll look at this story next week. I'll, I'll take you up on the mountain. I'll put you in a rock. I'll pass by, and then you can see the back of my glory. See, man, God's glory has a back? That's, that's, that's weird. But what all of this seems to be speaking to is that every experience we have of God's glory in this life is doled out and mediated to us in a way that we can receive it. Right? That there is a vision of God's glory that would overwhelm us to the point of death. And so in order for us to be in order for us to know God, he makes himself known to us in ways that we can see, in ways that we can understand. Right? Of course, the 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 most supreme picture of this in the story of the Bible is Jesus, right? Jesus is God's mediated presence to us. It's God coming to us in a way that we can see, in a way that we can understand God making known his heart towards us in a way that we can understand. And so Moses is on this journey where he's going to, he's seen some of God's glory. Remember he saw him in the burning bush. He saw him at Sinai, He's going to see him more. He's going to see, have this experience of seeing the back of God's glory as he passes by. But even for Moses, he doesn't experience the fullness of God's glory in this life. That even for somebody like Moses, this life is an incomplete journey into knowing the fullness of God's glory and his beauty and who he is. That to pray, Lord, show me your glory is to attach your heart to a prayer that will not be fully met in this life. It's to attach your heart to a prayer that you can taste in this life. The more we come to know Jesus, the more we come to know his glory and his beauty and his people and his grace and all of that, we genuinely can come to know more and more of who he is. But to pray, Lord, show me your glory, is to say, God, What matters most to me about this life, the thing that I'm seeking after above all else in this life, I won't get fully in this life. It's to attach our hearts to something that we have to await for, to something that we have to long for beyond our experience of life in this world and in this body. And that is a countercultural thing. To say, I'm going to attach my heart's deepest desire to something that I know that I'm going to have to wait for, into something I'm going to know that won't be fully answered. I'm going to live for something beyond my bank account and my health and my prosperity. I'm going to live beyond my experience of this life and place my hope in another life. You know, God does answer Moses' prayer. God answers Moses' prayer not just when he passes by and he sees the backside of his glory. There's a story in the Gospels where where Moses' prayer is answered. It's in all the synoptics, but Luke chapter 9 tells us about the time that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up onto a mountain. And he was glorified before their sight. Right, That he was transfigured from his ordinary human, uh, the way he looked to them through all the other days. And they get this glimpse, this picture of of Jesus in his glory. Jesus uh, in his his resurrected glory form. And who's right there with him? Elijah and Moses. Standing there and talking with Jesus. Moses had to wait until the coming of Jesus for this prayer to be answered, for him to see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. So there's a way in which we can say that we've seen God's glory more fully even than Moses did in his life. Because God's glory is most clearly seen in Jesus. In his love, in his mercy, and his giving to himself for us. And when we see him in this life, Peter tells us that when we see him, we will be like him. Right? now, He's speaking ultimately of, of the beatific vision, right? When we see Jesus fully in glory and we're transformed and are like him. But the way that we grow in this Christian life, the way that we pursue uh, the life that God has for us, growth in Christ, is that we see him. And that we're transformed as Moses was from one degree of glory to another so that we're made more and more into his image. So that we can reflect his love more and more in our world. We live in a world that's starved for a vision of the glory of God, that longs to see real transcendent glory. And we are the answer. We're we're the way that God shows his glory to the world. As we pray, Lord, show us your glory, and are transformed into his image. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would show us your glory. Lord, our vision in this life is so often crowded with so many other things. Lord, we want to see you as you really are. We want to know you. We want to know you uh, face to face as a man knows his friend. We want to know your love and your goodness and your kindness. We want to know your holiness and your power. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us your glory in ever-increasing measure, Lord, that you would show us who you are, and that in seeing you, we would be transformed and that we would be like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, As we come to communion, is the place where God still meets with us face-to-face? It's at this meal that God promises that his presence The God who we know is present everywhere, the God who's not constrained by space or time, promises that in a special way when his people gather around this table that he is with us, that he's with us by the power of his spirit, that Jesus is is giving us himself, his broken body and his shed blood every time that we come around this table. This is a meal For those who recognize themselves to be sinners in need of a savior. And those who have trusted in Jesus for that salvation. If you're here with us and you still have deep questions about Christianity and you're just not sure if you believe it all, uh, first off, we are so incredibly glad and honored that you're here with us. Uh, But the scriptures do say that you should wait to take this meal until you can do so uh, with uh, a common faith with this church. And so we hope that that day uh, comes soon. And This is a beautiful day to come into the tent, to to trust in Jesus and to come to the Father. But friends, this is a meal for sinners. It's not uh, for perfect people. It's not for people who never doubt or who never wonder. It's for sinners who need Jesus and who come to him to be filled. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in need of your mercy. We come to your table as beggars uh, in need of you to fill us and to satisfy us. And at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we also come to your table as sons and daughters. Uh, Lord, we come to the family table as those who, uh, by virtue of the grace of Jesus, uh, have a right here, who belong here, not because of our goodness, but because of your grace. And so, Lord, as we come, we pray that you would feed us with spiritual food, that you would sustain our faith by giving us your very self. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website christchurchintown.org